Welcome to week five of You Asked For It. This is our last and final week. It's been such a great series. I've enjoyed it so much. Have you enjoyed yeah, me it? me too. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, we've got some great questions for this week. Let's start with our first one. Jesus said his load is light, but scripture also says the path is narrow and few find it. Do these two scriptures seem to conflict each other? It seems at times there are scriptures that might contradict itself, but uh, scripture never does. It's actually one of the great things about the Bible is even though there's 66 books written over a thousand year period of time by multiple authors on three different continents, it's the same story and it never does contradict itself. That's what separates the Bible from every other religious book in human history. There are passages that you go, hmm, that does seem to contradict. This is a great example. So you usually have to look at the totality of scripture and use scripture to interpret scripture. So for example, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's talking about the burden we carry. Well, the burden we carry is very different than the path you might walk. So I grew up backpacking uh, with my family in Northern California, and uh, I carried a much heavier backpack because I was the oldest. And when we were hiking, uh, we would go up these, start really a wide trail, and the higher you go up the mountains, the narrower the trail became. Well, my little brother, when he was four or five, he had a little day pack, and I'm carrying this big, heavy backpack, but we're all going up the same trail. It's really a picture of what Christ is saying. He's saying, look, cast your burdens on me, your anxieties, your cares, turn them into prayers, because when we're obeying Jesus, the burden upon our shoulders is light. Yes, the path is narrow, but the burden is light. And so there is a narrow path, but yet the burden as we're going up that mountain, Jesus is the one carrying the heavy pack for us. That is a great analogy. All right, next question is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 refers to our bodies as being the temple of the Holy Spirit. How do we relate that to what kinds of food we are designed to eat and how to take care of our temple physically through exercise? So when it comes to food and dietary regulations, uh, you do see inside of the Old Testament, God did have a lot of dietary laws. We also see that inside of the New Testament that we as New Covenant saints aren't required to keep the Levitical dietary laws. Now, there's just practical wisdom as well because there are certain nutritional values in a healthy diet. The older that I get, the more that I'm realizing the importance of proper nutrition. Um, you have the right to eat a Big Mac every day if you want. Uh, the difference is this, you're going to probably see Jesus a whole lot sooner. Um, I believe that part of our stewardship responsibility is you know, our stewardship of our finances, stewardship of our relationship. But I also think there's stewardship that God looks at in terms of our own body. If this is the only body we get, then we should take care of it. Because if I can live another 10, 15, 20, 30 years because I ate properly and I exercised properly, then that, those are all years I can use to be with my family, to influence my kids and grandkids for God. Those are opportunities I have to serve God to lead people to Christ and so I want to live a long life so that I can make an eternal difference but if I don't take care of my body through proper nutrition then I will just simply get to heaven a whole lot sooner uh, the Bible does say uh, Paul said this he said uh, bodily exercise does profit a little so there is profit in exercise I think it is more important though what we're feeding our spirit than what we are feeding our body. For a lot of people, if they put the same energy into reading uh, their Bible as they put into reading uh, labels of food and put more emphasis on feeding their spirit, 
than they did their body, um, I think that would also be good as well. So there's a proper balance. Yes, take care of your body, but not at the neglect of taking care of your spirit. That's great. Our last question is, why would a loving God send people to hell? Well, a loving God doesn't send anybody to hell. In fact, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that we could miss hell. In fact, if anybody wants to go to hell, it's a choice. In fact, God said, I love you so much, the only way I'm gonna let you get there is you have to step over the dead body of my son. Jesus' dead body was the roadblock to keep us from going to hell. But if someone wants to step over that body and ignore Christ and ignore the sacrifice that he made, then God will honor that decision. But God doesn't send anybody to hell. Anybody that ends up in hell, it was because they made a choice to reject the free gift of Christ's sacrifice. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us these past five weeks, and we look forward to week five of You Asked For It. Well, hello and welcome, Element Church. We are so glad you've chosen to be with us today. Hello, Fireside Online, our, all of our campuses. Can we just welcome one another to the church this morning? We're so excited to conclude this series of You Asked For It. My sons and I, my family and I have really enjoyed this series. In fact, one weekend, we're sitting there, Pastor Eric's answering a question. Levi, my oldest, is 12, leans over to me and goes, Dad, this would have been a great sermon to invite a bunch of our friends that don't believe in Jesus. I said, you're absolutely right, because Pastor Eric has answered some amazing, some questions that, that most of us have had or that, that friends of ours had. And I encourage you, if you've missed a week, go back online, elementchurch.com, watch that week, listen to it on your way into work, something like that. If you've got friends that have asked some of these questions, send them the video. Say, hey, watch this and then have a coffee with them and sit down and, and dialogue a little more with them. But we're going to finish this series on the topic of relationships. And before we get into that, I just want to remind us of a few ground rules that we've set for this series on how we approach uh, these topics and scripture as a whole. And so let's just go back over those ground rules. Number one, where the Bible speaks clearly, we will speak clearly. There are things in scripture that are very black and white. There are, that you just can't argue with, Jesus died and rose again. We sin entered into this world, and because sin entered into this world, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Scripture tells us all we have to do is ask God to forgive us of our sins, believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and we will have eternal life with him. Where the Bible isn't clear, we will look for biblical principles. As much as there is some very clear black and white in Scripture, there's also some areas of Scripture that aren't as clear. And some areas that, that there's a little room, and this is where you see the discrepancies in, from church to church, maybe, and a difference of opinion and those kinds of things. Well, where it's not clear, we will give you some uh, some biblical, we'll look for biblical principles uh, where the Bible isn't clear. Where it is, where not clear principles, I will give my opinion. So if we don't, if it's not clear, there's no real principles you can do, we can, I'm going to give you my opinion. I will tell you when I'm doing that, speaking as Leo, I'm not speaking as God. And in fact, we even see the Apostle Paul doing this uh, in one of the passages here, here today. And then finally, the last three things. In essential beliefs, we believe there should be unity. We are unified in the belief of Jesus as God's only son. As Pastor Eric just shared with us, he came to save the world, and God so loved the world, so he did that. We believe in unity. The, the capital C church, the universal church, believes in unity in that context. All of those, uh, we have some unity in that. However, in non-essential beliefs, things that aren't going to make a difference, whether you get to heaven or you end up in hell, in those non-essential beliefs, we believe there should be liberty. And Paul warns us not to use our liberties as an excuse to sin. But there are differences of opinions. There are differences in Scripture that aren't going to make a difference whether you make it to heaven or hell. And sometimes we as believers tend to argue over that more than worrying about whether someone's going to go to heaven or hell. And so in those areas, we're going to find liberty. But 
above all else in all our beliefs, we believe that there must be love toward each other. The Apostle Paul put the, the 13th chapter of Corinthians, which is typically referred to as the love chapter, he put that between talking about the order of service, church service, and, and spiritual gifts. And between that, he says, it doesn't matter if you have all your theology right. It doesn't matter if you know all of the different nuances and you can hermeneutically decipher scripture. He says, it doesn't matter if you don't have love. Because if you don't have love, you're just making a bunch of noise and making people angry, basically, is what he says. And so he says it's important that even in all of these things, in essential beliefs, we'll have unity. In non-essential beliefs, we believe there should be liberty. But in all of these things, we should treat one another with love. So we're going to dive into our questions today. We're looking at this first question. You know, we spend a lot of time in church uh, talking to the families and to marriage. And so when this question came in, I uh, got it a few different ways, asked a couple different ways. Uh, I thought it would be important to spend a little time here because this does impact a good portion of our congregation. Question, this first question comes in and says, what does the Bible say about dating? As a 36-year-old who's never been married, is there any... Is there any guidance on selecting a partner? So before I jump into that, let me deal with a, a picture. Let me just pull up another 10,000 feet real quick and deal with the question of singleness. Is there any, what's the Bible say about singleness? Because if you're looking, if you're asking the question you're dating, it means you're single. And in today's context, sometimes that's looked at uh, in the church world, but in today's context, it can be looked at as maybe something's wrong. So 36-year-old, uh, it was a female that, that, that submitted this question. Um, she's, I, I know the individual, I'm not going to, for the sake of this message, I chose not to share her name, but she's a successful individual, uh, and she's asking a very valid question here. But let's look at the issue of singleness real quick, and let me talk about that for just a minute. Because if you want to look at singleness as a lifestyle, it's absolutely okay. In fact, Jesus himself was single and was able to fulfill all God sent him and did not need marriage in order to complete what God had planned for his life. Right? Singleness is not something that has to be, uh, be shunned, be looked down upon. Uh, it provides some freedoms that you otherwise may not have in life. Paul talks about, as he, when he addresses the issue of, of singleness, Paul talks about being able to give more time to do the things that God has laid on your heart. You have more opportunities as a single individual to give back to God, whether it's going on missions trips, uh, serving in, in different areas and compassion ministries around town. You have more time as a single individual than a married individual does because a married individual comes with some of the, the cares and concerns of this world. I can speak very directly to this. My two boys have played, uh, been playing football for the last uh, about, about three months now. And so for the last three months, Monday to Thursday, I've had football practice in one shape, form, or another every night, Monday to Thursday, for the last three months. That limits the amount of time that my family and I have to do the things that God may enable. There may be opportunities that God enables us to be a part of that because we have the cares of this world and we're, we're, I've got to, you know, we've got things we have to get done. They've got to get homework done, those kinds of things. Those, those complexities pile onto a married individual's life that a single person doesn't have in and of themselves. Now, I want to look at a passage of Scripture that Paul talks about singleness uh, very, very specifically because uh, it's, it's not in Scripture that and the, other, the other extreme in Scripture is that, well, uh, you should always strive to be single and that that is God's ultimate plan and goal for, for life. And that's really not true in and of itself either. It's taking Scripture out of context. So we're going to look at a passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, toward the end of the chapter, Paul says this. He says, now, now uh, verse 25, says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, 
but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Paul says right here, hey, this is not law. This is not God's law that you should live this way. It's my opinion based on what's going on. So Paul's giving his opinion here. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Paul, again, is being very clear. This isn't hard and fast rule. He's not saying don't get married. He says, in light of this present distress. Well, here's what we know about the time that Paul wrote this passage of Scripture. It's around AD 51. There was a huge grain shortage in the ancient world. The primary economic food and, and things that happened began to cause problems. And so Paul's saying, consider the issues at hand right now before you continue down the path of looking for a spouse. There may be some things you need to consider before doing that. Now, what Paul's not saying here is wait until you have enough money to get married because that will never happen. <laughs> Same thing with kids. Uh, we just need to wait until we, we have enough money to have kids. It's, it's just never going to happen. The cost of diapers, the food, all of it, it just doesn't happen, all right? So, so that, that excuse needs to just go, okay, God, we're going to do this and follow you, all right? So that's a side note. Come back to the issue at hand. So Paul's saying you have to consider all of these things as you're going down the path. But Paul also tells us that if you're not able to go through life without the passion burning within you, meaning the physical intimacy that God created for a man and a woman to share together, he said, if you, if you can't live life without sinning in that way, then I encourage you to go get married. And so, so as, we, as we start this question, let me start with this. If you're here today and you're single, you do not have a disease, regardless of what some of your friends may tell you. <laughs> All right? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. God has a plan for you. And if you're here today and you're single and you're looking for a spouse, great. Because I'm going to show us some things, some principles in Scripture that we can do as we approach that season of looking for a spouse in our lives. All right? So let's dive into the question specifically. What does the Bible say about dating? Absolutely nothing. Because in the ancient world, Scripture was, uh, marriage was typically done uh, in a, it was a business transaction. It was a transaction to make sure that families were taken care of, that daughters had someone that would take care of them. Uh, it was a way to pass along inheritance from, from father to son. And, and so it, it really doesn't talk about our current modern day of dating. In fact, dating today is still cultural and contextual. In the Western world, dating is this thing that we've created, you know, this romantic love and those kinds of things. Here's where I have landed on dating over the last few years. In fact, it started about 12 years ago, which happens to be the age of my oldest son. And my second son's 11, my little girl's 7, and I am now all in favor of arranged marriages once again. <laughs> in fact, I'll be taking the applications after service if you would like. I said that last night. My wife goes, I'm going to get the denied stamp out. Denied, denied, because she has no desire for the kids ever to be out of the house. Give her six years, that'll change. The Bible doesn't say anything about, about dating, but it does give us some principles on how we go about selecting a spouse, all right? And if you're at the stage of life where dating is part of, uh, you're, you're out of high school, let me just say that, right? You're out of high school and dating is part, you're looking for a spouse. Understand that you don't always get the luxury of choosing who you fall in love with, but you do get the luxury of choosing who you're going to date. Let me say that again. You can choose who you date, but you may not be able to choose who you fall in love with. Okay, so how you start that relationship is extremely important at the very beginning of that relationship. And for the principles we're going to pull out of Scripture today, I'm going to share a story with you, which is one of the greatest love stories inside of Scripture, and it's found in Genesis chapter 24. 
In Genesis chapter 24, Abraham's getting up in years. His son Isaac does not have a wife yet. Yet Abraham knows that God has promised to fulfill all of these promises through Abraham, through his son Isaac, through this promise of God, his son Isaac. He says, but God, he doesn't have a wife, so how is this going to happen? So Abraham, because of the day and, and time, takes his servant, tells his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac. And in this journey, what we're going to see are some, some principles that are established in Scripture. Remember, every Old Testament story is tied to a New Testament principle. Okay, So we're going to see some principles that we can apply to our lives through how this servant goes about finding a spouse for Abraham's son, Isaac. So let's look at this story. All right? And the first principle we see here is that the spouse should be a believer. The first thing we see here is that they should be a believer. Genesis chapter 24, verse 11, uh, excuse me, verse 3, says, Swear by Abraham telling his servant, Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. And I know this sounds a little weird, and, and we've heard stories. I'm not saying that you, you know, there aren't people that haven't married, uh, that haven't started a relationship with someone who wasn't an unbeliever, and then they came to find Christ. That's actually the exception, not the norm, that that happens that way. Let me take a sidestep here real quick, because I'm not going to have a chance. I got asked this question a couple times. We won't be able to get into it in depth today. Scripture's clear, though, that if you are married to an unbeliever, and there are not some things going on, marital infidelity, uh, abuse, those kinds of things, that, that, that Scripture says you are to remain married to them, because that's how the grace of God will continue to find its way into their lives, and through your relationship, you can lead them to Christ. All right, so it's not permission. What I'm getting ready to share is for those that are not married, dating. So if you are married and you're married to an individual that is not a believer, this is not a permission or a stamp of approval for divorce. That's not what I'm talking about here. All right, so let's come back to the dating side of things. In, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, God commanded the Jewish nation to not marry outside of the Jewish nation. And the reason he did that is because he knew that if they did that, their hearts would be led astray from God. And we see it throughout Scripture. When you read the Old Testament, when things became challenging for the Israel nation is, is when they began to introduce outside people of their faith, believers that, that thought and believed differently, they began to lead them down a path that was different. Here's why. They have a different standard of moral and spiritual beliefs. And so when you begin dating someone who doesn't believe Jesus Christ is Lord and they don't have a solid faith like your faith, then what begins to happen is they begin to they see they make decisions differently than you do they make financial decisions differently than they, they you do they see your physical relationship differently than you do and so it's important at the outset of a relationship and the outset of a journey that you find someone who is solid in their faith as you are so that's the first thing and it's repeated paul repeats this in first corinthians chapter 6 in verse 14 he says do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers he's talking about marriage here for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness paul says do not be connected unequally meaning don't be emotionally and and relationally invested as a as a marriage partner to someone who isn't believing the same way and it starts with when the minute you begin dating it may be one of those questions you can find out before you say yes to a date uh, you may not you may meet someone and not know that but it needs to be a question you ask really pretty quickly out of the gate before you get too emotionally attached to the individual because it will cause severe friction in your relationship if you are not connected spiritually on the same page all right so that's the first principle we see the second one we see we find in Genesis chapter 24 verse 11 the 
this is the servant. He says, and he made his camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. The second principle we see here in terms of dating is you have to go to the well. And I'm not talking about the modern day wells. I'm just, you got to go where they're going to be. If you're sitting at home waiting for a spouse to knock on your door because you're praying, God, please send someone to me, and you never get out and meet people and get into an environment where people of the opposite sex are going to be, God's not going to just go, you know, hey, mail order bride, here you go. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So Abraham instructs his servant to go where the women would be, drawing water at the time of day they would be there. So here's some great ways to do this in this context as a believer. Number one, serve at church because you will begin to interact with others who are on the same stage of life as you are. I, I can think of a couple stories just in the last 12 months that have happened here at Element Church with some single individuals who, uh, serving on some different dream team uh, teams, began to have conversations and, and, and they were ready to get back out there and they were ready to get into a relationship with someone. And, and so the next thing they know, they're being introduced to this other, other single person on this team and, and, and they're in a solid, strong, faithful relationship. They understood that they were starting at a similar spiritual foundation because they were both already here serving God on the weekend. And they began to be introduced and they were able to develop a relationship over time like that. The church is a great place to start that journey. And so you say, well, Leo, I don't know, you know, I, I'm only here on the weekends. Then it's a great reason to get involved. It's okay. We don't mind. <laughs> it's a great reason to get involved because it, we know it will grow you spiritually being, being serving and, and serving the local church. God has a plan for you to do that. But we also know it begins to create community for you and develop not just maybe potential future spouse relationships, but also lifelong relationship with other friends that can be a part of that. And so, and, and the same goes true. If you're sitting here today and you go, Leo, I don't have any friends in church and I, I don't know how to meet anyone, it's the same principle. you got to go to where they are. Ladies, if you don't have any friends and you don't show up to our women's night of worship that we have created for an opportunity to have community with one another, or men, if you don't come out and be a part of the men's summit here in a couple weeks, it, it's an opportunity for you to meet a friend that might develop into a lifelong relationship, but if you never get out and go to the well, you're never going to meet the person God has for you. All right? So, it's principle number one, they must believe. And number two, you got to go out, you got to go to the well. And finally, number three, you have to pray for God to help you. We see this in Genesis chapter 24, verse 12. The servant prays this prayer. It says, O Lord, God of my master, Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. Before he went to the well, not only did he pray, but if you dig a little deeper inside of this passage here, he actually says a very specific prayer to meet the very specific individual that he wants to meet. And he says, God, this is what I'm looking for. So if you're here today and you're looking for a spouse and prayer is not a daily part of that journey, you need to make that a big part of the journey for you. Also, if you're here today and say, Lou, I've been praying. I still haven't met anyone. Don't stop praying. Don't give up. God's timing is always perfect. He has something in mind for you. It will happen eventually. All right? So... That is some principles to how we go about finding a spouse, uh, how we go about selecting someone to begin that dating relationship. But let's also talk about the boundaries that we need to make sure that are in our lives over the course of this relationship as a believer. I have three specific boundaries I want to talk about today. Number one, a physical boundary. 
It's all right to date someone exclusively. It's all right to, to go on dates as just a couple. I encourage you, though, however, to include other couples as often as you can as well. It makes, you, it makes the relationship a little more well-rounded. Uh, they begin to, you get some feedback from your friends. But it also doesn't give you the temptation. Don't go out to dinner and then go back to the apartment afterwards. One of the things Scripture is very clear on, and I know this sounds really old-fashioned, but I'm telling you God will bless your relationship uh, and your marriage if you, refine, if you confine sexual relationships inside of marriage. There's a blessing that comes with that that Scripture is very, very clear about. So the reason I tell couples not to go back to the apartment, I don't care if you are adults and you, you can make great decisions and you're solid in your faith, why would you give that temptation room in your life? Maybe, or even, even another one that I hear about all the time is you're going you're gonna to do a vacation together. And you're like, you're, now you're not only, not only are you uh, out from any accountability that you might have already in place, you're out there by yourself and you're introducing that temptation. And you say, but Leo, I'm, I'm, you know, we're solid believers, we're good. And here's, here's, this, here's what I tell people all the time. As, as over the years, I've had opportunity to work with a number of new church planters. And one of the questions I ask church planters is how they're handling their money when it comes in on the weekend. What are you doing with it? How are you making sure that it stays safe and secure and those kinds of things? And let me say this. Element Church has great processes for how we process and handle money. And, and what I, the, the examples I'm about to share do not take place here. And I've heard this story more than once, saying, you know, well, I've got a guy, our usher, our usher goes down, he counts the money, uh, he puts it in the bag, and he seals it in the safe, and then someone takes it to the bank the next day. And I say, that's great. How many people are counting the money? Well, we don't, we don't have enough people right now, so it's just him, everyone else is serving in other areas. And I ask them the question, why would you give them that temptation? Oh, he's a great man of God, she's a great woman of God, they would never do anything like that. I said, I don't doubt that at all, but why would you give them that temptation? So that when time does get tough, or maybe they need a little bit of extra gas this week, and they don't just grab a 20 and stick it in their pocket because no one else is in the room with them, why would you put that temptation in front of them? It's the same thing in a dating relationship. Why would you, no matter how strong your relationship are with God, why would you put that temptation in front of you, go back to an apartment where it's just the two of you? God has something more and something extremely incredible. I was, was talking, was, I've been, this question, uh, I've had a few people comment on this statement this weekend, and, and I firmly believe that my wife and I have now been, uh, we've been together for, uh, since night, we started dating in 1996. Uh, we've been married over 20 years now, and I firmly believe it's because we chose to honor God in this area of our lives. is a big part of why our marriage is healthy the way it is today. The second boundary you have to make sure, not just the physical, but the emotional boundaries. We all know that that, that relationship, so I'll never forget the time, uh, my first day of class, it was my first day of class, my freshman year of college. I sit down at 725, Psych 101, in front of me sits down this curly, brown-haired, curly girl who is, who's just gorgeous, and uh, it was my wife. I didn't know that at the time, it was, you know, I just, so I learned her name, and it took her about three or four weeks to learn my name, even though we had class three days a week, and I sat behind her, and I talked to her all the time. But... I was the guy, I'm the romantic in my relationship, all right? I'm the guy that tends to maybe go a little overboard. And, and then my entire world, and we all know these, these couples because it makes us sick, my entire world becomes about her and I forget all my other friends. It's not healthy. It's not emotionally healthy. It's called codependent. And what happens is you begin to rely on that person for things that really aren't their responsibility in your life. In fact, we know these people because they're the ones that are always posting on Facebook or Instagram, and, you know, I've got the world's greatest girlfriend, and she just does so much for me, and we're like, you know, throwing up in our mouths a little, going, okay, we heard it the last 10 times you posted. <laughs> the reason it's not healthy is because it begins, to re, re, it begins for us to rely on someone else for things that only God can provide for us. 
right? So here's a question. Here's a question you can ask yourself to make sure it's a, it's a self-reflective question that you can ask yourself in this moment. It says, what in this relationship belongs to me and is my responsibility and what belongs to the other person? What in this relationship belongs to me and is my responsibility and what belongs to the other person? Let me give you a couple examples here. Number one, your happiness. Your happiness is not someone else's responsibility, okay? The way your day goes is not someone else's responsibility. Life's fulfillment. God created man and woman to complement one another, not to complete each other, okay? You can only find completion. I'm sorry, Jerry Maguire's wrong. You can only find completion in your relationship with God. You can only find wholeness of life, wholeness of an individual in your relationship with God. So someone else should not be filling that void in your life. You should not find your provider in your marriage relationship. That's God's job. Okay? So those are the things in your life, your spiritual relationship with God. It's not their job to make sure you're going to church. It's not their job to make sure you're doing, uh, spending time in the Word and spending time praising and worshiping Him. That's not their job. That's still your job. So if they choose not to go to church this weekend, you go, well, they're not going, so I'm going to go. That's an emotionally unhealthy connection. All right? So physical boundaries, emotional boundaries, and then finally, and I'm going to say it one more time, spiritual boundaries. I can't, I can't, and I can't say this strongly enough. It's important that at the start of the journey of dating that they have a similar spiritual faith that you do. They have to be there. And even, even from a standpoint of they have to be almost at the same maturity, spiritual maturity level that you are. Because if you're the kind of person that's serving on the weekends, you're part of a small group, you're faithful and you're giving in your finances, and you go to get married and they're a new believer and, and they don't understand those things and they're, they're, they're not even, they haven't even begun to giving their tithes and, and they're looking at your checkbook going, why are you giving the church 10%? And, and, and it just creates some, some tensions. So you have to make sure that those boundaries are in place at the start of the relationship. All right, next question. We're going to move on. Next question is one of these questions that all of us will face at some point in a relationship that we have. And that is this question of forgiveness. So let me read the question that was asked. This is just one of many different ways it was stated. It says, what is true forgiveness? If you do not forgive, do you still need to talk to said person? And we've all, you know, we, we, you know, Scripture tells us you must forgive in order to be forgiven. We've heard that. But how do we do that? That is so much easier to say than to actually do and live. And so as I was, as I was researching this question and how to answer this question, I was in a conversation with Pastor Eric, and we're talking about it. And, and the next thing Pastor Eric does is one of the things that Pastor Eric does, so well, he just begins to expand on Scripture. And I said, wow, that is way better than anything I could ever say. Would you please be willing to share that with us this weekend? So for, to answer this question, I want us to look to the screens and hear from Pastor Eric. When it comes to forgiveness, there is a lot of confusion about what biblical forgiveness really is. First, let me just say this. Forgiveness has nothing to do with feelings. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, I, I can imagine there probably wasn't a lot of feeling that Jesus had regarding forgiveness because his body was overwhelmed with pain. It was a choice that Jesus made. And there are times that we choose to forgive people and we don't feel things. We may not feel forgiveness for decades, but know this, it's simply a choice. Now, how do you forgive somebody when you don't have a feeling and when they hurt you so deeply? Well, here's what I remind myself of. In prayer, when I'm dealing with unforgiveness towards somebody, I just simply stop and I talk to God and I remind myself this, Heavenly Father, I know that the sins you have forgiven me over my entire life, past, present, and future, 
far, far exceed whatever this sin and transgression this person has committed against me. So if you can forgive my sin and my debt that I can never repay, then I have to forgive this debt. And so just remind yourself, God forgave you far more than you're ever going to have to forgive somebody else. Next, when it comes to forgiveness, does forgiveness mean that we have full reconciliation, meaning all the privileges of friendship are fully restored? So we need to understand uh, friendship for a moment. Friendship is a privilege. It's not a God-given right, meaning I don't have to be friends with everybody. Scripture does not command that. Scripture simply says, walk in love. Well, I can love you and not be best friends with you because some people aren't relationally safe. So when somebody hurts you and transgresses against you, there might be some really, really deep violation that was there. There might be some continuation of bad habits on their part that make that relationship not safe. There are times I've just put certain relationships in time out because it wasn't safe physically or mentally, emotionally, or spiritually for me. So I can forgive you, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to go right back to being best friends. See, we see that Jesus wasn't best friends with everybody, but we know he loved everybody perfectly. He went to his own hometown. His hometown didn't believe in him. And in fact, they tried to rush to the top of the hill outside the city, and they were going to throw Jesus down and kill him. And the Bible says that Jesus simply passed right through them. There are times that, uh, for example, going to Jerusalem, Jesus knew that there were a group of Jews that were waiting there to kill him, and the Bible says that he hid himself from them. There are just certain relationships Jesus did not subject himself to because they weren't safe or they were intending harm. So forgiveness does not automatically mean restoration of privileges. The prodigal son is a great example of this. The prodigal son transgressed against the father, and it wasn't until he came to his senses and repented and went and made restitution with the father by simply saying, I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Uh, Forgive me. The father restored him, and privileges and reconciliation took place, but there had to be full repentance on the son's part. There are just times that you choose to forgive people, but there's not full repentance in terms of reconciliation then those relationships might not be safe to go back to the same status. Trust is earned. It's not a requirement. I don't have to trust you. I have to love you, but I don't necessarily have to trust you. Trust is earned. Respect is earned. And respect is the foundation of every relationship. So if you aren't going to respect me, uh, I'm going to struggle to have a safe relationship with you. So forgive, that's a requirement. That's a commandment. Relationship is a privilege built upon trust and mutual respect. This is a topic that will continue to be a part of your life until the day Jesus returns and creates a new heaven and a new earth. Because sin is in this world and life's still going to hit us in the face from time to time. And forgiveness is one of those things that if you can learn to forgive, it will actually enhance your experience here on earth in this time. And so uh, if you're looking to dig in a little bit more into the topic of forgiveness, I encourage you to check out Matthew chapter 18. Maybe this week do a little studying on that. It's a passage of scripture where, Paul, or, excuse me, where Jesus is talking about uh, how to deal with someone who has sinned against you, that it's your responsibility to go talk to them about it. Uh, and then it's also the same chapter that Jesus gets asked the question, how many times are we supposed to forgive? And he, and he unpacks that in those moments. So understand, this is one of those topics in a relationship that if you're not careful, the enemy will use because forgiveness will become something that will create a divide. Unforgiveness will become something that divides 
a relationship. And if you can bridge that relationship, if it's someone who's truly repentant, someone who wants that relationship to continue to, to, to succeed, and, and you want to give them, and they, and they begin to earn that trust again, as Pastor Eric was talking about, it can also be the bridge that creates the strength of a relationship that otherwise may never have been there before. So I encourage you to spend a little bit more time looking on that. I want to get to one more question before we finish up here today. I don't want all the married people in the house to feel like they didn't get anything out of it. So this last question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit really quick and, and move through, and it's a great question, and it is this. Will my spouse be my spouse in heaven? If not, why get married? <laughs> a great question. I was asked in a number of different ways, and, and, um, and, 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 and it's an interesting question because <clears throat> we actually see the story where people would, you know, some of you may have heard, well, there is no marriage in heaven, and so you won't have a spouse in heaven. And when you really dig into Scripture, when you really look at this, and, and this particular story is, is in three different areas of Scripture. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew 22, uh, where, where it's a group of religious, believer, uh, religious leaders who come to Jesus, and they're trying to trip him up, and they say, hey, Jesus, here's, here's the issue. Uh, there's a, a woman who uh, has been married seven times, and each of her husbands have died, one after the other, and when she gets to heaven, whose wife will she be? And the key here is, in, in all of these scriptures, in fact, in, as, I've as I really studied, even into the commentaries and the, and the theologians on this topic, the issue at hand when they ask this question is not, is there going to be marriage in heaven? The issue at hand at this question is, is will there be a resurrection of the body? This group of, of, of religious leaders of this day did not believe that there would be the resurrection of the body. And you and I know as believers that the resurrection is a central core belief to who we are. And without the resurrection of Christ, he would have just died for our sins. But he would not have overcome sin had he not been raised from the dead. And so the resurrection is at the core of this question. So when Jesus makes the statement in, in Matthew 22, verse 30, what he says, he says that the, the, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. <clears throat> what we have to realize here is Jesus isn't saying that you will forget, you will cease to remember all of the relationships you have here on this earth. What he says is the institution of marriage, as we understand it in our current world, is no longer needed. In fact, if we want to see what relationships will look like in heaven, one of the best things we can do is go back to the very beginning of God's original intent in creation. God created the heavens and the earth, and then he created man. And he looked down upon the earth, and he looked down upon man and said, man, he's lonely, he needs some help. And so he puts Adam into a deep sleep, and he takes a rib out, and he creates woman. And in the other five days that God in God's creation, he finished his creation, Scripture tells us, he looked at it, and he says, it was good. When he created woman, he said it was very good good. And all the men said, amen. He said, it is very good. Why? Because he realized that he created in them the ability to relate as a creation together, not just his relate, their relationship with him, but the relationship they have with one another. He created that initial bond and he gave them command in Genesis chapter one, verse 28 says, be fruitful and multiply. He gives them the command to develop a relationship in the very, before sin ever entered into this world, it was part of God's original design. So when God talks about creating a new heaven and a new earth, he's not saying that the relationships you have right now here on earth are going to cease to exist. In fact, what we see is that we continue to be known as eternity goes on. We see this in a couple different ways. We see this when God talks to Moses at the burning bush. And this is the passage Jesus talks about in Matthew 22. God says to Moses, I am the, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Not I was the God. Meaning, meaning, and Jesus talks about this. He says, it's not that I was the God of these men. These men are still in eternity with me. I am their God. We see it on the mountain transfiguration where Jesus goes up on the mountain. He, he takes Peter, James, and John up there with him. And, and down from heaven comes Elijah and Moses. And they recognize. Peter says, Lord, should we set up tents for them? They recognize them in some way. They knew that that was Elijah and Moses. Whether that was through a conversation that they had had with Jesus. Scripture doesn't tell us how they knew that, but they knew it. But ultimately what we see is that Jesus' resurrected, glorified body was recognizable to his disciples and to his followers. And they knew him, and they still had relationship with him, and they still served him and loved him and cared for him. And, and so what we see is God's original plan for us. The institution of marriage was developed for this reason. One, it signified God, how to receive God's blessing on a relationship. Because there are things that should only be done inside a marriage. We're not going to go any further than that on that. But it was also a signpost because once eternity happens for us, what we know is that all of sin, all of our pains go away. And we're going to experience a relationship ultimately with the ultimate marriage that will happen in God. And throughout the New Testament, this is the example God sets, that Jesus' bride, which is the church, will be married to him. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's always good food at a wedding, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will begin to understand and experience a relationship unlike any we've ever known. And our earthly relationship with those that are believers that go with us will be going to a completely new level, ones that we've never experienced before. Every great relationship starts out with that googly-eyed, heart pitter-patter. But after being married for 20 years, and some of you have got more experience than that, you realize that your marriage moves into this relationship that's so much more than just how you feel about someone. It becomes a relationship that becomes that you, you begin to enjoy life together. You begin to, to share life's, life's joys and celebrations and sorrows. And, and so I believe that in heaven we're going to continue not just with the relationships we have. We're going to make new ones. And as Pastor Eric talked about, I'm, I'm fully expecting my wife and I to fly around from galaxy to galaxy and see all God's creation together. And, and my kids to go with me and, and my parents to go with me and, and, and the friends that I made that are believers that go on with us. In eternity, God is creating. So marriage is a created signpost. It's a created sign pointing toward the ultimate relationship because it is the sign of a relationship that's the most intimate, coveted relationship you can have in this world between a man and a woman. And it was part of God's original plan in the Garden of Eden. And so will our spouse be our spouse in heaven? I believe that we will maintain those relationships with them. Will marriage be in heaven? Not as we currently understand it. Unfortunately, Scripture just doesn't real clear about what that means and what that looks for us. I can't wait to get to eternity and find out. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm going to turn this time over back to our campus pastors to give you an invitation to be a part of that wedding ceremony for all eternity. Maybe you're here today and you say, Leo, I, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, and, 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 and I want to understand that, that he needs to be the one that really does complete me. I've never prayed for him to be a part of my life, and I want to, I want to figure out how I can do that today here in just a moment. I'm going to give you a chance to say a prayer that will start that journey. Or you're here today and you say, Leo, I've walked away from God, but I realized this morning that, that I, need to, I need that relationship back with him. But see, God's love for us, we can only fathom in our current world and someday we're going to see him in all of his glory and all of his splendor. And we're going to be able to be a part of what he has for us in a ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And it starts by simply asking him to forgive you your sins. Believing that Jesus was raised to the dead and paid the price we owed. And if you would like to pray that prayer today, simply repeat after me. Church, can we say this together? Dear Jesus, I want to start that relationship with you. 
I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I thank you for paying the price I owed. I thank you that you were raised to life again so I could spend eternity with you. I choose to follow you for all the days of my life. In Jesus' name.